please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, our text this evening will be verses 1 through 6, but I will extend the reading through verse 13. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Last time, while we were in chapter 6, we were looking at the impossibility of serving two masters. And so one response that could be raised to this is, well, of course, we're not supposed to serve sin as a master. We're we're supposed to serve God. So all we need is the law, right? After all, the, the law is opposed to sin. The law says what is sinful and marks out what is sinful and condemns what is sinful. So that's all we really need to help us to live righteous lives, right? In these verses, Paul is going to continue to develop the relationship between sin, the law, and the flesh. Or sin, the law, and the members of our body as our bodies are in this fallen condition as subject and prone to temptation. 
And so he's going to continue uh, this argument, and it's, it's similar to what we saw last time, but it's also different in some important ways. Last time we saw that you cannot serve two masters, sin and God, unrighteousness and righteousness. This evening we're going to see that you cannot be married to two husbands, at least not at the same time. But here, it's not sin and God that are opposed uh, in, in the image, but it's the law in Christ. That you cannot be married to the law, and you cannot be married to Christ at the same time. That you must be married to the one and produce offspring for death, or you must be married to the other and produce fruitfulness unto God. But you cannot be married to both, else you will be an adulteress. And so as we consider this text this evening, that you cannot be married, and as I speak to you, I'm speaking to you corporately. This is an image corporately of the church as married to Christ. We will examine the two marriages that we find in our text. The first marriage, a marriage to the law, and the second marriage, a marriage to to him who was raised from the dead, to Jesus Christ. So first we have being bound to the law, which is likened to a marriage. And we can look at some of the characteristics of this marriage to the law. What is the life of Mrs. Law like? First we can note that this is a marriage in which Mrs. Law is condemned to death by reason of her being bound to her husband. This is a marriage that condemns to death. We see this as the uh, result in verse 4, that those who are bound to the law, those who are joined to the law, those who are placed under the law, find that the end of this marriage is a death. That those who are bound to the law, those who would relate to God through the righteousness that comes through the law, find that that results in condemnation, that it results in a death. You were made to die, my brothers, to the law or even by the law. And that the law is the instrument which puts to death as it evaluates sin and condemns it. So we see that there is a connection between the law and the flesh, the body, and sin. And that connection is this, that the law condemns sin's activity in the body to death. It condemns sinners to death. That the law holds out that standard of perfect righteousness, and where that standard of righteousness is not met, the sure sentence that it pronounces and executes is death, a bodily death, which must take place. But this is not the only relationship between the law and sin and the flesh in this first marriage. We have seen that, that the law comes into effect at the end in its condemnation of sin, that there are various sins committed, and then the law at the end evaluates those sins, pronounces its condemnation, and executes the sentence, death. 
But even prior to that, elsewhere in Romans, we see that as the sin is being produced in our fleshly members, that the law increases the guilt, that it takes what are sinful actions, it identifies them as such, and now makes us more accountable for those sinful actions. That the law in identifying sin takes away the excuse that you can say, I didn't know. But not only as those sinful actions are being produced, but now in our text, we're going to see that the law even has a connection to sin from the beginning. From the entrance of sin into the sin's domination of the body. But not only is the law operative at the end of the process in condemning, not only is it operative along the way in increasing the guilt because now there's an explicit command being transgressed, but in our text we're going to see that the law is even the door by which sin enters so that it can gain a dominion over the flesh. In verse 5, we read that while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. If you're reading in the NASB, you see the word aroused there in italics, which indicates it's not part of the original text. And I think that may be an over-interpretation. I think Paul is careful to say that the law is not what is causing the sin, but that it is the occasion, the opportunity that sin uses to come to life. That sin is the door by which sin enters. This may help to illustrate this by an analogy or an illustration in the Garden of Eden. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden with that uh, in their existence prior to the command coming to them, prior to the reception of a command or a law from God prohibiting them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Prior to that, how could Adam and Eve have sinned against that commandment? How could the serpent have tempted them into rebellion? when there was not as yet a commandment that had come. It's not until the commandment comes that the serpent then gains an opportunity to twist it. It's then that there's now a door by which he can enter and use as an occasion to gain dominion over the flesh. And so sin takes this commandment, which is good, this commandment which is holy, righteous, and good, and spiritual, which comes from God, and which is intended for life. To stick with the illustration from, from Eden, that the command that was given to Adam was not to kill him, but it was so that he could exercise his commission as keeping and guarding the garden, so that when Satan came in tempting him, that he could execute just judgment and thereby establish himself as righteous and, and maintain that original righteousness in which he was created. But because of the craftiness of the serpent, 
It takes that commandment intended for Adam to, to establish himself in a state of righteousness. It twists it. It uses it to its own end, its own purpose. And it becomes the occasion for bringing death. So this is a marriage, marriage to the law, is one in which sin is very much close at hand, not only because sin is able to use this marriage to condemn, not only because sin is able to use this marriage to increase the guilt of sin, but also because sin actually finds this as its first opportunity to begin its work. It's through the commandment, through the opportunity provided by the coming of the commandment of the law that sin is then able to begin its effects. That sinful passions are through the law. I think this, again, as, as I've indicated, I, I hesitate at the, the translation there of aroused, but at least there is that idea of taking opportunity of this being the occasion by which sin is able to then begin its reign over the flesh. So this is a marriage that condemns to death. This is a marriage that opens the door for sin to enter in the first place. And it's a marriage that produces fruit for death, that the offspring of this marriage is uh, wicked actions leading to death. We need to be uh, careful about how we, we think about this image here. It would be easy to think about the law in this image as this, uh, this meanie, this bad guy. And that's not, that's not what Paul is doing here. He's, he's demonstrating how the law is not to be charged with anything wrong. The, the law is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. And yet, because of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, it's still able to take that holy, righteous, and good commandment and use that as an opportunity for furthering the reign of sin through death. So again, at the end of verse 5, we see the, the fruit that results from this first being bound to the law while we were in the flesh. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. This illustrates how malevolent, how deceitful, how exceedingly and hyperbolically sinful sin really is. Hyperbolically, not as a, a, a metaphorical way of speaking, but as a transliteration of the way Paul describes it, that it is sinful beyond measure because it is able to take this holy, righteous, and good law and yet use it as an opportunity for producing death. So we should not see the law only as a husband who uh, demands too much from his wife, and his wife comes along, and she is trying her best 
to meet her husband's demands, and she's trying and she's trying, but it's just never enough to satisfy her husband. That's true with respect to the law. We, we can't measure up to the law's demands, but here in this text, there's an even darker situation being depicted. Parents, imagine if your daughter came home to you and she said, I've met the man that I'm going to marry. And she tells you, Mom, Dad, you're going to love him. He's holy. He's righteous. He's good. He's even spiritual. As parents, you are skeptical of your daughter's analysis and you think, well, she's just being starry-eyed. But you then meet the man and you realize, actually, no, this, this is an accurate and objective evaluation of him. He is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. And yet on their wedding day, as they are walking back down the aisle during the recessional, you find that their marriage has become the occasion by which, your, uh, by which this, this bride all of a sudden begins to have a monstrous disfiguration in her body. And that the occasion by which this monstrous disfiguration first began was the union to this husband. That gets at something like what is happening when sin is taking advantage of the law to produce sinful effects in the body. That there's nothing wrong with the law as such. It's holy, righteous, and good. And yet sin is so malevolent that it's able to use this being bound to the law as an opportunity to produce further wickedness. This indicates that there is something deeply awry, not only that the one bound to the law can never measure up to it, but that precisely in being bound to the law, this is the situation in which sin is able to produce wicked actions. Not that the actions are good, but not good enough, but that the actions are downright wicked as a result of this union. Again, recognizing that it's not the law which is causing these things, but sin taking opportunity through the law. So this is a marriage that produces fruit for death, wicked actions in the body, a monstrous disfiguration of the body that terminates in death. And fourthly, this marriage is binding until death, that there's no way out of this marriage except through death. The only way out of this union in which sin has now gained an, an entry point, in which sin has gained a foothold, in which the law was the opportunity and the occasion for sin to enter, the only way out is in a coffin or in a tomb. It's here that we see Paul's marriage illustration uh, the logic of Paul's marriage illustration. He begins with a general principle in verse 1. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That the law is in effect 
while there is the life of the one who is under the law. But then that jurisdiction terminates upon death. And so then he illustrates this general point in verses 2 and 3 with the marriage image. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. That for a married woman, if she is bound to a husband, she is bound to him for life and committed to him into the law of that marriage, the law which governs her life, until that husband dies. And then upon his death, she is free to remarry. But she cannot remarry prior to that. She cannot be married to two husbands at the same time. And so it's at this point that Paul uses this illustration to show how the death of a man results in freedom from the law which bound. That just as in the image of marriage there is required the death of a man to set free, so that is what has happened for us in Jesus Christ. There has been the death of a man who was made under the law like us, thereby setting us free from the law which bound us. And the non-negotiable here is that there must be a death of one of the parties. That one of the parties must die in order for this law arrangement to be dissolved. And so this is what Christ has done for you. He has released you from the law as a means of establishing a righteousness before God. He has released you from a husband that could not produce a fruitful harvest. Verse 4, Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. It is the body of Christ in death that brings about the termination of the previous arrangement. That the, this law is binding until death, and a death of one of the parties has taken place because Christ has become under the law. Just as Israel was under the law, and just as there is a, a general um, uh, creational natural law, Christ was under the law. And the punishment of that law came to effect and was terminated and executed upon him because he was covenantally representing you who belong to him, thereby effectively securing the conditions necessary to terminate the previous arrangement, to terminate the previous marriage. There is a, a law in English common law, or there was a law in English common law, which I think illustrates well uh, what Christ does for his people. There was a law known as coverture, and this was the practice 
whereby a married woman and her husband represented a single legal entity and in which the husband could be and would be liable for the actions of his wife. Now, it went both ways, and it's been heavily critiqued because of um, it also meant that the woman couldn't contract uh, legal uh, legal covenants in, in other contexts, and so it's fallen out of favor, and I'm not going to comment on, on whether or not it's a good idea to bring it back, but it illustrates well this idea that husband and wife are bound together, and the husband goes as surety for his wife, that he takes upon himself the legal liabilities of his wife. So should his wife go commit a sin, he is the one who is held accountable. He is the one who is held responsible. Should his wife produce death deserving actions in her body, because he is the husband, because she is a covered wife, it is the husband who goes and offers his body to suffer the penalty of the law. And so this is what Christ has done for you by becoming under the law, that he has brought an end to the previous marriage. He has terminated that commitment that was to last until death by taking into himself that death that the wife deserved. What does this mean for you? This is tremendous assurance and comfort for you that there is no longer any condemnation from the law. That as you may have a conscience that is stirred up and that you're reminded that I have sinned in this way or that way, or as a sin from years previously seemingly out of the blue comes up and accuses you, and you ask, what must I do to atone for this sin? What, what, do I do to, what do I have to do to satisfy God so that he accepts me on the last day? All you must do is look to Christ. Because you have been bound to him. And all of the law's claim, all of the law's penalty has been terminated with the body of Christ. You have died. Death ends the arrangement. You have died. When did you die? With the body of Christ. As you belong to him by faith. So now that arrangement has been terminated. It has been brought to a point of death. And now the claims of the law against you are removed. But you are not left a widow. It was an end of the first marriage so that you could be brought into a second and better marriage, a marriage to Jesus Christ. And this, in contrast to the first marriage, is a marriage that, in which there is justification for eternal life. In the first marriage, the result was condemnation of sin resulting in death. In the second marriage, there is justification. The risen Christ raised from the dead as your husband and for you, for your justification. Paul has elsewhere stated in Romans that Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. And now this one who was raised from the dead is our husband. So that there is now a 
a declaration from God as God declared Jesus Christ righteous, that the accusations brought against him were uh, overturned, and that God declares his son vindicated righteous. So that is your pronouncement now. Because you are married to this one who is raised from the dead, this one who has been vindicated and justified and who justifies you. And because you are, as it were, under coverture, that you are one legal entity with your husband. The second marriage is a marriage that shuts the door on the reign of sin. As the first marriage was the occasion by which sin entered and gained dominion over the flesh, so this is a marriage which will ultimately and in the last shut out sin in its entirety with all of its effects. There is in this image, I think, perhaps reason to think of the Song of Songs and to see Christ as here fulfilling the husband of that song. It's not, it's not a, a clear home run connection. I think there's certainly elsewhere in Scripture we can, we can make these conclusions broadly, but I think perhaps even in Romans, even in this, in this text, there, there may be enough to point us back to Christ in the song. That as we think of Solomon as the son of David, we also remember that in Romans, that Christ is introduced in the opening verses as being of the seed of David. He is David's descendant, who now takes to himself a wife. And in this context of Romans 7, there is also this imagery of fruitfulness, bearing fruit to God, which is, of course, a pervasive theme throughout the Song of Solomon. So what does the Song of Solomon have to do with Christ shutting out the reign of sin? As we go to that song, we read, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So that here we have presented to us that husband whose love is as fierce as death. A husband whose love takes him to the grave. A husband whose love desires to earnestly be united with his wife. A husband whose love earnestly desires to reverse, undo, and shut out every last remnant of that previous marriage. A husband whose love many waters cannot quench. A husband whose love is the very flame of the Lord. Come to annul that first marriage. Come to bring about that death which ends the first marriage and erases and obliterates all of its effects at the last so that we may enjoy that new and second marriage to Christ, our husband. Furthermore, as the first marriage was a marriage which produced fruitfulness unto death, this is a marriage which produces fruits to God. Look at the end of verse 4. 
that we were made to die so that we might be joined to another, wed to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That in this new union, there is a giving of the Spirit, which is going to enable God's people to begin to uh, produce in their bodies new actions, a new kind of action, not uh, actions which are unto death and which are sinful, But now at last with the risen Christ comes the dispensation of the Spirit, which is able to put God's law in the interior man so that there is now a new new power which is able to change the actions of the flesh, or rather to change the actions of our body to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we now serve the Lord with our bodies. And lastly, as the first marriage was a marriage that could only be terminated by death, so this last marriage is one in which death, to which death will never put an end. The first marriage could be ended, but this one cannot be. Jesus Christ is the one who was raised from the dead, and thereby the, the, the possibility of a second death is removed. There cannot be a second death the possibility that this marriage would ever end for those united to Christ is impossible because what is required to bring it to an end is a death. And both parties have already died. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and his spirit is ours. So this is a permanent marriage that does not end, that cannot end in death by virtue of Christ's resurrection. When couples get married today, they will either uh, commit to one another faithfully till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live. And both of those express the same idea. One of them explicitly puts it out there. This marriage is going to end with one of us dying. And the other one, it's, it's more implicit, as long as we both shall live. But the implication is when one of us stops living, when one of us dies, the obligations of this covenant are brought to an end. Well, when Christ takes you to himself, he says, as long as we both shall live. But there's not that, that implication that one of us is going to die. Rather, these are words with a new and richer meaning from the resurrected Christ who is not subject to death, who betrothes to himself a people delivered from death so that he may dwell with them forever. So, congregation, as you consider your relationship to the law, particularly as a means of establishing a righteousness before God, consider that you have been put to death, that Jesus Christ has died. He is that that one who became under the law for you, brought an end to that first covenant, and has now brought you into a new and better marriage in which you are now able to produce fruit to God. And this is one in which truly you will live happily ever after. This is a marriage that will never part. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for Christ raised from the dead. We thank you that he has 
united us to himself. We thank you that he has brought an end to that first marriage, to the law, that he has released us. And so now there is no condemnation, but rather there is the spirit of life at work within us. And we pray that that spirit would bring to consummate effect that union already begun in that day in which we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which we will feast as the people of God, as the bride with her husband. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.